0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I
1: learned
3: at 20 is you. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm
4: very good, Bryce. Uh, Great to be back here for another uh, installment of our ASX week. Uh, We're featuring some of the best presenters uh, from the ASX Investor Day, Uh, and I'm excited for this one because we're going to be talking about an area of the market uh, that we traditionally haven't been able to access, but there's been some unbelievable returns, and that's in uh, the private equity world.
3: That's it. It is our pleasure to welcome Chris DeMassi. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bryce. So Chris is the co-founder and portfolio manager of Montica Global Investments. Montica run two ASX-listed funds, the Montica Global Long Only Equities Fund, the ticker is MOGL, and the Montica Global Extension Fund, the ticker is MKAX. And as Ren said, the presentation that Chris did for the ASX Investor Day focused on the opportunity that uh, investing in private markets has and how we can access that through the ASX. So we're going to unpack all of that today, Chris. Excellent.
4: So Chris, let's start with a definition uh, of people who are hearing private markets and unsure what we're talking about. What do we mean when we talk about private markets?
2: Private markets are just the investing markets that aren't tradable. So we're used to the public markets like, like stock exchanges yep. all around the world private markets are, are different in that they're they're not accessible by the general public um, they're typically the domain of wholesale and institutional investors that directly invest in companies or projects or, or or lend lend money and I'd say another defining feature of the the private markets is that they're they're relatively illiquid as well. Once once these big institutions have invested, they can't get their money back so yeah. so so quickly.
3: So, Chris, why private markets? How is the opportunity set with private markets different to those that are, you know, the public markets?
2: I mean, it's really two questions. Why private markets for the big investors in the private market funds and then why private markets for us where we see an opportunity as well? But I'll focus on, on the first. And what we've seen in private markets is that there are uh, just more and better opportunities in that space and that's leading to better returns as well over long periods of time for these investors. So they can commit capital to, to opportunities they wouldn't have had access to in the public markets and they can get better returns often with lower risk in doing that it would be good to sort of set the
4: scene and and understand what's been happening over the past decade more more than a decade uh because you know we hear about that opportunity in private markets and you know some of the crazy companies that are staying private for longer or choosing not to go public um so help us like put it in context like
2: what has been happening in private markets Ren, if you go back and i 20 years now, sounds like a long time, but it's just really just going back to the early, early 2000s. Private markets were were really just a, a speck, just a little dot, and they've expanded 10 times between then and now. So it's a $7 trillion plus market. And at the same time, what's been going on there is that there's been less and less opportunities available in public markets and just a greater number of opportunities available in the in the private market. So you take the equity space for example, the number of equities listed on public stock exchanges around the world has halved in the last 20 years yeah and at the same time the private equity owned companies have multiplied by five. so there's just plenty more opportunities in the space.
4: Mm, I think people would be really surprised by that mm. that in you know in the last 20 years it feels like so many more people have been interested in investing and so many new companies have come to market. And yet the number of listed companies has halved.
2: Well, that's right. has been, there's actually been an increase in the age of companies that are coming public, especially, especially in the most attractive areas. So in the areas like technology, um, some of the companies that are, that are at the forefront of, of digital transformations. And so, for example, if you go back to 1997 and Amazon came public that year. It was just three years old. Mm. And the company wasn't even worth a billion dollars at the time, and now it's worth $1.7 trillion. And you sort of fast forward and you look at all of the, the, you know, the, the technology companies that have listed over the last couple of years, like the Ubers and the Airbnbs. I mean, they're 10, 12 years old or more, and they're coming to market with tens of billions of dollars of market cap, sometimes even, even more, more than that. I think what's what's really interesting for, for investors there is that public market investors were able to participate in all of that value creation, along with Jeff Bezos, of <laughs> course, <laughs> in, in, in Amazon. Almost the whole of the $1.7 trillion is is sitting in, in Jeff's and, 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 and public market investors' hands, whereas you look at something like an Airbnb or an Uber, they'd already created so much value by the time they came public that... All of that value creation has happened for the founders and the private market investors. So to get a piece of that, to participate in that, you really need, investors really need to turn more and more to the private markets. And that's exactly what they have been doing over the last couple of decades.
4: And, I mean, the most extreme example of that is the two companies that I think everyone in the world wants to invest in today, which is Stripe and SpaceX both of which may never need to go public, but if they do, it will be at $100 billion-plus valuations. Yeah, I
2: mean, they're both, you know, one's almost touching a $100 billion valuation, the other one's just a a tick over. But that's a great point. They they don't necessarily need to come public, and it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. So as the opportunity set has really broadened out in the private markets, more and more money is flooded in. Mm. And as more and more money comes in, more companies don't find the need to go public to raise money to fund their losses and to fund their investments because the there's plenty of money around in the private markets for them to do that. Mm. And so you end up in this situation where you really need to, to be investing in private markets to be able to access these returns as well.
3: So we're seeing a shift away from the public, well, you know, away from public into, into more private, but what is that being reflected in portfolios? Like in terms of allocation, private market sector, is that shift really starting to happen
2: as well? Well, the shift is happening. Is it being reflected in portfolios today? No, it's not. So if you look across investor portfolios today, only about 7% of portfolios are allocated to private market investments. Mm. I'm looking wide and broad. So I'm looking at institutional portfolios sovereign wealth funds, the big endowments, um, insurance companies, investment portfolios, and even wealthy individuals, their, their portfolios. So across all of them, seven just 7% of their portfolios are in private markets today. But that is changing. And there's this shift towards the private markets. And, of course, coming off such a low base, you only need small changes to make a really big difference. And so there's, there's already a lot of intent. And we're seeing a lot of money moving towards the private markets. And by 2025, that 7% is going to go to 10%. But what that means is an extra $6 trillion wow. is going to come into the space. It's just staggering, the, yeah. the, the amounts. And, I mean, I mean, it's only, we're only sort of touching the, the tip of the iceberg, really, to think about the opportunities that we, we're talking about that are in the private markets, but to still only have 10% of your portfolio allocated to the asset class. I mean, there's a long, there's a long, long runway for growth ahead.
4: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So let's get some, let's get a bit specific and let's talk about some of the big names in the space. Um, Who should we be aware of either individuals or companies that are big players in this private, in these private markets?
2: There's a handful of companies really matter. So across the world today, there's about 11,000 Firms that manage money in the private investment arena, but five of them, five of them command thirty percent of the assets there. So you get seven trillion dollars in assets, two trillion dollars sit with just five companies. Wow. Okay. Five managers. Yeah. And um, you know, I'd I'd like to say they're the household names, but but really, you know, as we've found out along the way because private markets have been the domain of big wholesale investors. Mm -hmm. They're not. These managers aren't really well known to everybody. But the big names there are Blackstone. That's by far and away the number one yep. in the market, but also Apollo, KKR, Carlisle and Ares out of New York as well. We're invested in three out of the out of the five of those. All American? Of the of of that set? Yeah. Um you could say they're American but they they have global operations. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. I mean
2: it's come so far. I mean even you know you, you go back Go back to the '90s, and and really, private market investing was private equity, and it was actually all about US leverage buyouts—the yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of stuff that Richard Gere's doing on Pretty Woman. It's that, <laughs> it's that, right? It's that. And uh, and you fast forward today, and that sort of uh, that style of investing is less than twenty percent of private market investing. It's it's just ballooned, and mm-hmm. so so you know, there's new styles of investing. There's new asset classes. Like we've gone into venture capital and growth equity but also distressed lending and real estate projects but it but, but it's also expanded geographically yeah and there's plenty that's being done outside of the u.s in fact last year there was more money raised to go into asian equity funds than there was money raised to go into u.s funds right so so it's truly a global business and all of these managers have operations all over the world. Yeah.
4: Mm. I mean, even in Australia, we're uh, preparing to interview the CEO of BWX, the mm-hmm. natural beauty and skincare uh, company, yeah. and they had a private equity company, Bain, uh, try and buy them out uh, a few years ago. Yeah, So, like, it's touching everywhere in You're the in world. They're in our backyard as well. Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Well, I wanted to, to ask on that. We are going to do a bit of a deep dive on Blackstone in a moment, but what, what's the landscape like here in Australia for, for private markets? You know, there's some big global players, but, you know, how does Australia compare?
2: Yeah, we're a pretty sophisticated market. So, you know, when we've looked at um, private markets, we've looked at private markets around the world because we're we're global investors. But even just having a look uh, around Australia, a lot of the big names are here. Blackstone, KKR are mm. here. Some of the big banks have private investing activities, whether they do it off their own balance sheet or they raise money, It could even be overseas, to invest in our markets, like, for example, Goldman Sachs. And then there's just a a swathe of other mid-market and smaller private investment managers, probably, you know, part of the the group of 11,000 that aren't the top five. (laughs) So
4: when we talk about private markets, we're talking about those big five are sort of private equity players. That's sort of what you'd call them. There's also a number of big names in the venture capital space, the sequoias of the world. How do you think about them? Are they just in terms of assets, just nowhere near as big as these players, or do you sort of separate them and think of them differently?
2: Differently because because they play in one one space. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's it's, it's venture capital mm. um, or venture equity, and then when I, I think about the global asset managers that we're talking about, they do that as well as a range yeah. of other things. So they they are so much bigger, but they're so much bigger because. They're, they're large within venture capital now and becoming more and more so because that's what their clients are demanding. Yeah. They're also big in, in different asset classes. Mm. You know, gr- growth equity, distressed lending, special yeah, situations, yeah. real estate, natural resources. You know, some of the, you know, the venture capital specialists mm. aren't doing such a, a wide range of investing. Yeah. And that, that comes with a, a whole set of advantages for those big asset managers. Because they can do everything for their clients.
4: Yeah, full service. Yeah. yeah, one-stop shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we need. We need equ- <laughs> equity mates needs to get in with one of them and then we can get everything done. All of our natural resources <laughs> lending.
3: <laughs> so, Chris, we've set the scene. We kind of understand what's going on in the space. Uh, let's take a look at how we actually can invest in private markets because that's the interesting stuff. But before we do, we'll take a quick word and from our sponsors. So most people, if they were to invest in private markets, they'd be investing in private funds like KKR, Blackstone that, you know, we, we've spoken about, but Monte could take a different ap- approach and believe investing in the managers themselves is a better option. Can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the funds have done really well. If you could get invested in those, in those funds, you'd, you'd probably do okay as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd do pretty well. But, but, but I'd say to you, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, how would you invest in those funds? Well, that's going to be my next yeah, question. you need a <laughs> of the cash. And right, 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 you do. And then, and then if I gave you a menu of them, how would you pick which one you want to be invested sure. in? Sure, yeah. And so what's so attractive to us about the managers, beyond being very accessible, and I'll come to that, is that they win no matter what. Okay, so it doesn't matter which funds do well, or which strategies or asset classes do well. These large asset managers, they do well when the whole industry does well. Mm. And they, they also are able to take advantage not just of the performance of the funds but also the growth in the industry and the expansion of the space. So more and more flows coming into the space, more assets being allocated, even separate to the performance and the returns that are coming out mm. of the space, they're, they're able to make money out of both of these things. You know, if you're an investor in the fund, you might do well out of one particular fund or you might not you're an investor in the asset manager, it doesn't matter which of them do, does does well, you're going to do well. And you also get to benefit from more money being allocated to these strategies over time.
4: And just to really spell that out for people, is it similar to like a hedge fund manager that has a management fee and then a performance fee?
2: Yeah, that's right. So that look, they make money a few different ways. Yeah. And that's really attractive too. So Private market asset managers—they do—they make—they make a management fee, so they take a percentage of the assets yeah. for managing them.
4: And so, for more money coming into the space, regardless of how well it does, management fees will—you're going to make be more good. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then if you can perform well, the asset base grows, mm. and your clients place that money True. back yeah, yeah, yeah. back with you again, and so so you make money when you perform well too, yeah. even just off the management fee. And then look, there's a second a, a second way that they make money is from performance fees so they take a share of the profits mm. and again if the funds perform well or the better that the funds perform the higher that profit share is but if you run a larger asset base you can take a clip of the profits of many more dollars of of assets of performance and so they, they can make money that way too and then thirdly look they a lot of these firms often tip their own money into their deals and their investments, and so they can they can make additional gains by investing in their own in their own funds. Yeah. There's several ways that they make money, and and it's across two dimensions. It's a, it's across getting better performance, but also aggregating the assets as mm. well. So
4: in your presentation uh, for the ASX Investor Day, you identified one private manager that you think is the best opportunity. Uh, and we want to get to that. But before we do, uh, you mentioned earlier you said you own three of the biggest five. You obviously don't think the one that we're going to get to is the only opportunity. I guess why, why the three and not the other two?
2: They're all quite similar. They're all quite similar. And they're all going to do really, really well with the, um, the expansion of the, the universe of private market investments. But they all have slightly nuanced differences as well. Um, across a couple of a couple of different dimensions. And, you know, one is probably a little bit more advanced or further along its journey than the other. Some of them invest more of their money in their own deals than others. So they do things a little bit differently. But in in, in total, they're all very, very attractive because they're all so well-placed to do well out of this trend because at the end of the day, they're the, the biggest and the best in the world. And really you're splitting hairs when yeah, it comes okay. down to it. So it's it.
4: not like they're wildly different. It's no. then it's about the process that you guys through to go through to identify the best opportunities.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And then for us at the end of the day, you know, there's a value equation there yeah. as well. So it's understanding for us which of these businesses are going to be the winners, who's going to lead the growth in the space. And we, you know, we know that the there's got there's plenty of growth in that market. Hmm. And then really trying to understand which ones are being underappreciated or undervalued by the market. And, and you know, honestly, we think each and every one of those three, KKR, Blackstone and Carlyle, are really being underappreciated today. Yeah. You know? So we've kept people
4: in suspense long enough. We've told them that you're going to tell us which you think the best, which one you think is the best opportunity. So uh, in your presentation, you said it was Blackstone, uh, which trades on the New York Stock Exchange, ticker BX. What specifically does the company do? Like, Does it focus on any area of private equity uh, and why do you think it's better than its competitors?
2: Yeah, so Blackstone is the biggest and the best. It's the, the gold class in the private market investing space. So they're number one. They have $781 billion under management with a nice. with a b. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and, uh, I mean if they keep growing it will soon be with a t.
2: Well this is what's amazing it, it absolutely will still be, it will be with a with a t. In fact we think it's only going to be a few years before they're a trillion and a 2 trillion dollar manager and it's because of the scale advantage that they have. They're the the biggest and the best in the market and that meant has has meant over time that they've been able to get bigger and leverage that scale and really start to spin their own flywheel of success, we would say. Mm. So they they've, they've started from a point where they were a trusted partner for their clients and they made them excellent returns. So Blackstone's key funds have made on average 15% per year for over 30 years. Jeez. And then as a client, you're pretty happy with that return. And so not only are you willing to put your money back with Blackstone, but you're probably happy to tip in more money. And in fact, we've seen more clients come to Blackstone Mm. as well. So they end up earning a lot more in fees, of course. They have invested that back in their platform and their business over time. And so that means that they've been able to get the best talent, Mm. um, build up the scale of their operations, see the best deals, um, service their clients the best and, at the end of the day, what that means is that they offer better client solutions and better performance, and it just it just starts to feed on itself. Yeah, and that's happened for the last you know thirty five years in Blackstone's case, and that flywheel doesn't slow down. In fact, it, it keeps spinning with its own momentum, and we think that that's going to happen for for the better part of the next decade or more.
3: You speak about though benefits of scale. Fees on assets under management seven hundred eighty one billion sounds great, but the big guy BlackRock sitting with nine point five trillion. What's the argument for Blackstone against someone like
2: BlackRock? You're a hard place please. and eighty one billion. <laughs> I mean, I isn't more. enough? Who want more? I want the top end of town. <laughs> I'll you, look, look, there. You could absolutely, you could be absolutely right, but they're just two different beasts. Blackstone is involved in the private markets as a very active investor. And the value proposition there is really strong outperformance and you pay for that. Mm. Those management fees are relatively high, but you pay for it because of the strong performance. Whereas BlackRock has a different value proposition. What they're selling is broad market exposure at a very, very low and falling cost. So they both have their place. For institutional investors and even the retail market, but they're just doing two very different things. And we prefer to be in a space where the fees and the margins are higher, and the value proposition is away from just a very cheap price. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, BlackRock, BlackRock is is doing something very different, and they're competing on fees, and they can do that because they have they have such enormous scale. But they they really need to have those nine trillion dollars in there. And they just don't make as much off that $9 trillion mm. as what Blackstone does. You know, they've got 12 times as much assets, but they don't really make more than maybe double yeah. what Blackstone yeah, is yeah. making in fees yeah. because of the different, um, the different markets they markets. Yeah, that's interesting.
4: On that point around fees, so uh, we've seen in the, the listed equity space, um, fees have come right down. You know, ETFs have driven the charge, but all active managers have had to really follow suit. With the big five in the private equity space, do you expect a similar competition around fees uh, and a, like a lowering of fees to to get more assets?
2: Yeah, what's been really nice in that space and really nice as an investor in the manager is that those fees have been very persistent over a long period of time. And there's there's, there's a couple of reasons why. What we've seen happen in the public space is returns have compressed around the average or the, the median. Mm. That hasn't been the case in private markets. There's really large dispersion. And so the, the top performing funds do really, really well. They do much better than the pack. Mm. And investors are willing to pay for the potential of that outperformance again. So that's, that's, one, that's one reason why we see fees being quite persistent in the private arena going forward. And the other reason is because... It's not as easy uh, to invest in the space. So in the public, in the public space you can put your money in an ETF. you can you know it's this whole rise of passive investing. That doesn't exist in yeah, private yeah. markets. There's no way to access this space without going to the private equity or the private capital asset managers. Mm. They really sit right in the center of this expanding universe and they're controlling the flows and controlling the investment opportunities and making a lot of money in the middle mm. and there's not much about that we could see that's going to disrupt that like what has happened in the in the public arena yeah and so that's that's really valuable as a shareholder in those businesses is that pricing persistency
3: so chris you'd obviously have a thesis for blackstone it's 10 bagged over the past decade must be nice and
1: <laughs>
3: uh, so that i guess begs the question how big do you think it can get to over the next decade.
2: The ten bagger over the last ten years would have been really nice, but we've only been going for six years. <laughs> what has been excellent is it's doubled just this year, and so wow. so so it's been a great contributor to the portfolio. But I, I think what's more important is we don't see that coming to an end, and and so there's still there's still plenty left in the stock, and even after doubling this year, I still think that the stock is underappreciating what the the true future earnings potential is going to be at Blackstone. So you start today with just under $4 billion of earnings. And when you think through the basic building blocks of industry growth and Blackstone's ability to increase their share and their increasing profitability over time and those additional performance fees and profit share and you package all of that up, where we get to is $20 billion of future earnings power. So it's a five-fold increase. And while that's happening, profit margins are going up and the fees are getting stickier and more predictable, and that's much more valuable as well. So, look, I'm not ruling out a 10-bagger over time <laughs> uh, again, but we definitely see a path to the stock appreciating by five times mm. or, or more from here. Nice. Yeah, Well That's what we want to hear.
4: Does it get to a point where the – the amount of money in the space is bigger than the opportunity set, like that they have to start chasing worse deals or there's just not enough places to put all this money.
2: I had the same question in our internal sales meeting this morning with the guys. Right, we're on the same page. You're on the same page. I feel feel like the story is such a good one that people are trying to find what's wrong with this. Yeah, there's plenty of money in the private equity space looking for a home right Mm now, Um, a couple of trillion dollars. Uh, Even though that's the most on record, Compared to the size of the markets and the amount of activity that's going on, it's actually not going to take very long to deploy. Believe it right, or not, probably okay. less than two years to deploy that money. But I think what you've got to do is come back to the the size of the investment market universe. While there's trillions of dollars sitting there waiting to de- be deployed in private equity and the space of private markets is a, is a $7 trillion industry, compare that to – the amount of assets in the world that are being managed. It's over $100 trillion today. Mm. Now, there's $4.5 trillion in private equity funds, just the equity part. There's $116 trillion of market cap on global public stock exchanges. So there's plenty of places where that money can be deployed. There's mm. plenty of assets that that can be bought, plenty of companies that can be invested in, plenty of places for them to go and Lend and to fund projects, so I don't think that that's going to be a problem because while we're talking trillions of dollars of money that needs to find a home, there's tens and hundreds of trillions of dollars of opportunities out there.
4: Just just the scale of it all is mind boggling, super funds
2: (laughs) as well. Like the goalposts have changed, millions has gone to billions, has gone to we're operating in a world of, of trillions. Yeah, and it just shows the I, growth, the, the extent of the growth opportunity.
4: Yeah, I think one thing Bryce just said there is probably worth expanding on. So you mentioned super funds, mm. um, but that those really long term patient capital allocators, the super funds, the endowments, um, you know, the family offices of the world, they've been moving quite heavily to private equity. It's probably worth us just you know touching on what you're seeing there because you know we love talking about long term investing here at Equity mm. Mates and. And those guys are true long term investors.
2: They are, and, and, and they've led the way. And uh, if you look around the world, the biggest allocator to private markets, even beyond private equity, have been the endowments, um, typically the university endowments mm. out of the United States. And so, as a group, um, they've allocated about 27% of their portfolios to private markets.
4: Compared to 7%, which is the for average.
2: the industry. And, yeah, so you, yeah, and, yeah. and so, who's under indexing there? Well, while there's a a couple of other institutions, it's also the insurance companies and retail money. Mm. And when I say retail money, um, it's everywhere from those high net worth individuals all the way down to sort of just the mass market. And the retail market's huge. I mean, Blackstone uh, a couple of months ago talked about the, the opportunity set outside of just the institutional investors. So that's a $60 trillion market. But then they talked about insurance being thirty trillion dollars, and the retail market being another sixty. Uh, sorry, being another eighty trillion dollars of market opportunity. So, yeah, you, you're right. There are there are some pioneers out there and some super funds that have really been leading the way and in investing in private markets. Mm. There's a lot that haven't been. Yeah, there's still got a, a lot of um, sort of making up to do, and then there's insurance companies and and the retail space that, that, are, that are still under indexing. Mm. And, you know, they're only just getting going. Mm.
4: Well, I think talking about retail investors and how they can access the space is a good segue to talk about uh, the two funds that you run. Mm-hmm. Um, so both listed on the ASX, M-O-G-L and M-K-A-X are the tickers. Um what can you explain? What the differences are? Do they both offer access to this private equity thematic? Um, do they do it in different ways?
2: Yeah, they're, yeah Mogul and MCAX, and they're they're both pretty similar, um, and they they absolutely both offer access to the private market theme that we've been we've been talking about. Look, they they both have the same mission, and that is to uh, achieve superior compounding of our investors' capital and and that's right alongside our money as well because we invest in the in both of these funds. So Mogul Mogul does that by investing in a you know concentrated portfolio of about 2 dozen holdings. They're the they're the business winners in these attractive markets like the private markets we've been talking about. They're underappreciated. So Mogul is a long-only fund that holds those 2 dozen opportunities and we're patient holders and we see those compound returns happen over time. MCAX, on the other hand, is just a little bit different. It has an extra compounding power. So so if you uh, you know you think about Mogul, MCACs is investing in the same portfolio, but we're increasing the amount of investment in those holdings by typically 30%. For the same investment, you get 30% more investment in those in those excellent companies. And we do that by running a a short portfolio, so we take the proceeds of shorting some other stocks that we don't like, and we invest it into that concentrated portfolio of stocks that we really do like.
4: Interesting. It's been a tough market to short uh, the last sort of eighteen months. Do you always get proceeds out of the shorts?
2: Yeah, so we get proceeds just by by the by the nature of shorting. So we short those stocks, the money comes in, and then we use that extra money to invest more in the long in those 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 longs.
3: Nice. Well. Chris, it's been a fascinating conversation. Private uh, market's not one that we often get to touch on here at Equity, Mates. So um, thank you very much for for your time. We do have a final three questions, but before we get to that, uh, if people would like more info on what you're doing at Montica, where would be the best place to go?
2: You can just jump on the website, montica.com.
3: Easy. Are you on Twitter or TikTok.
2: <laughs>
4: personally less so <laughs> nice one and if uh, people want to hear more about Blackstone, uh, they can check out your presentation on the asx investor day website uh, the link to that will be in the show notes to this episode but let's get stuck into the final three questions uh, the first one is do you have any books that you consider must read
2: so when it comes to investing the must read for me was a book called margin of safety by mm. Seth Klarman, yeah, and I think that's just a great way to learn the fundamentals of value investing mm. and to really understand, uh, really understand different assets, different markets, and how to value them. But the other I think required reading these days are Jeff Bezos's letters, and so you can read them like a book. You can start mm. in 1997 and go through to the to the current version, kind of like packaging up Warren mm. Buffett's mm. Berkshire letters back in the day. I think they're, they're a great way to understand how to really create tremendous long-term value, mm. build wonderful advantages in business and then apply them to just massive markets. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do every, every single day. So I think you've got to be a, a student of, of Jeff Bezos as well. So mm. it's, a, it's another one to look out for.
4: Yeah, I love that. Love Margin of Safety as well. I think it's the best investing book I've ever read. Difficult to get your hands on. I think it goes on Amazon for like a grand these days. But uh, if you can get yourself a copy online. You, should. you could secretly get a PDF yeah, yeah, copy, yeah. PDF <laughs> copy, but you didn't hear it from me. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Next question we like to ask, forget valuation or anything like that, just purely uh, fundamentally, what's the best company you've ever seen?
2: One really big one and one really small one. Yeah, great. So you get two two for you, right? Two for your money. Um <laughs> One really big one at the top end of town is Microsoft.
4: Hmm. I
2: think it's the greatest company in the world. I, I I think it it's just been amazing how they've taken a monopoly position in the PC market paradigm of, you know, the the 80s and the 90s and transitioned that into almost an equally dominant position in cloud software and computing. And they've really got a license to to print money for a long, long time. Incredible pricing power, um, incredible scalability, and it's just a fantastic company. Mm. And then I'd say at the other end of the spectrum, and and in, in our own backyard, uh, has been REA or, or RealEstate.com.au. Mm. I mean, it's the dominant number one in a two-horse race, and um, similarly has a, a license to increase prices and and print money over a long, long period of time, albeit in a, in a smaller, smaller space down here in yeah. Australia.
4: It's fascinating that of, we asked this question, we've asked it every interview we've done this year, and, you know, we've got some of the ones you'd expect. We've got the alphabets of the world. Uh, we've had Microsoft. But I think number one response is REA Group. Which is fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: It is just (laughs) home country bias, maybe.
4: Home, (laughs) maybe a little bit, but it's just like it is amazing how. Well, we can look all over the world,
2: and we and we do, and it's the one stock that we have had or have in our portfolio from Australia, and we've had it from day one, and it's been it's been an excellent performer because over time you just see those compound gains come through.
4: Yeah, and I think for me, like those two answers are just a classic example of how investing in what you know and what you see around you is just so important like we all use microsoft products if we bought a house we've all looked on you know uh, realestate.com it's like these these great businesses are in front of us it's just about really seeing them yeah uh, so final question if you think back to your early days you know just starting out as an investor uh, what advice
2: would you have for your younger self probably a few things that i've learned along the way that might be a little bit esoteric but it's it would be continue to, to learn how to learn continue to understand your own biases and I'd say the uh, the other important piece of advice would be look for opinions different to yours and look for sources of information eclectic sources of information different to to what other people are looking looking at I think they're the ways that you can really get ahead in investing and probably in life as well mm. I
4: love that
3: love yeah. it. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. As I said, not often we get to chat about this, uh, so it's been really interesting, and I know that a lot of our community would have enjoyed it as well. So uh, thank you for your time. Uh, make sure you go and check out Chris's Prezzo on the ASX website. It'll also be uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, this podcast will be filmed on our website as well. So been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me hey thanks for listening to this episode of equity mates we love hearing from you so drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better go to your podcast player and leave a five star review also a reminder that the equity mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge we've got a brand new website a facebook discussion group we're on instagram youtube and slowly making our way as an influencer on tiktok well that's ren so uh come and say hello and join the community we'd love to welcome you until next time
0: EquityMates Investing Podcast is a product of EquityMates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. EquityMates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of EquityMates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. EquityMates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the EquityMates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.